Thank you, worship team. That was a, a real blessing. Well, good morning. Good morning. Well, I want to just greet you in the Lord this morning and go over a few things that are happening in our body and would always encourage you to take your bulletin that we have with all kinds of information that's important for you to read through and keep abreast of that's going on in the life of our body. One thing that I haven't mentioned enough is the Sunday school classes that go on first hour. I know that many of you have availed yourselves of them. Um, Phil Cochran is one of our teachers in one class, and then we also have another class that is the um, Mike Bellani and Todd Jackson-led class. And that class, uh, I believe, is going to be, correct me if I'm wrong, this week coming, right? This Sunday, it's going to be offered second hour now. And what that would mean is if you wanted to be a part of that class, you would come and attend first hour and then go to uh, Sunday school second hour. But uh, they talked about that today and I guess agreed to shift it to second hour. And I want to do that because uh, I'd like to see class offerings happen on both hours so that people sort of make their plans to stay for the you know nine to noon sort of time time block. That's just my own personal desire. But I know that uh, you, you guys kind of can figure out your own way and routine about things and how you want to do it. But that class is in the book of Acts. And so if you want to study God's word and study um, the Acts of the Apostles and the early church, that is a great way to do it. I've studied through that book before. And it's nice to be able to take it on a Sunday school's pace because there's a whole lot there and it takes a while to get through. And so consider that. I uh, also wanted to mention a few pastoral uh, remarks, make a few pastoral remarks. Uh, Ron Witt, our associate pastor here, has come through his surgery and is doing fine and is recovering. Uh, down still in Rochester, uh, Minnesota, but doing well. And I was able to have a phone conversation with Vicki, his wife, uh, during the surgery. So I kind of visited and sat with her via the phone um, during that time. And she was making sort of uh, some inductive notes for her Alaska Bible um, College class that we offer here. So we had a big time about that. And, you know, I, it, it, was, it was just a good way to connect um, with her pastorally and pray with her as well. And we wish, wish Ron well and um, believe that he's making a full recovery. We've had a, a couple babies that have come um, in our midst in the last couple weeks. Um, there's one baby in the back of the service, uh, the Byers baby. It's uh, Brent and Gretchen Byers' new baby, Eden. Uh, if I'm getting the middle name wrong, forgive me. Is it Lael? Yeah, Eden Lael Byers. And so she's brand new and, what, days old, right? All right. And also, uh, the it's John and Kelly jo- Johansson. Jo- and jo- the Johansons are connected to Dave and Carol Staus, if you know them. They just had a baby, John and Kelly did, and their child is Alyssa Gray, 6 pounds, 11 ounces. So when the babies come, it's always exciting. It's kind of like when people are born again, we get excited. And when new babies come, we get excited as well because our church is growing one way or another. And uh, anyway, it's good for us to affirm and support um, parents who... Uh, are raising children in the Lord. We want to be um, pro-babies. And, you know, I tried to add to that just by my coming with mine. So um, glad to glad to see that happening. Also, with our men's ministry, we have a uh, an offering that's coming up on November 5th and 6th. Mike Weber is putting together and has put together an overnighter for you men at, to be a part of. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go as well. It's in the middle of your bulletin at the top of the page. It's the men's overnight retreat at Cooper Landing. And uh, Cooper Landing, I've visited, but I've not really hung out there yet. And so I'm looking forward to going there. That's where Mike Weber used to minister, he and his wife Kieran, full-time. He was a senior pastor there at the Baptist Church in Cooper Landing, and so he has all rights and privileges still to their facilities, their parsonage, so we're going to be able to bed down indoors, inside with heating and all of that. So those accoutrements will be for us, but we'll be able to eat and cook and, and have a Bible study, several Bible studies together. And Friday night, I'm going to be offering a study on biblical masculinity. And so what it means to, to be a man according to the scripture is what we're going to look at on Friday night. And we're going to kind of carry that theme through the 
through the Saturday morning time, and a couple of the elders are going to be teaching, and leaders are going to be teaching as well. I think Larry Whitmore is tasked to teach Saturday morning, so it's just going to be a great time together. We're going to shoot guns. Um, uh, there's going to have a rifle competition. We're not going to shoot at each other, I don't assume. We're also going to enjoy some fishing, hiking, and I think if it snows, we could even snow machine there. Um, anyway, I just wanted to put that before you. It's $15. It's a men's thing, so we can be last minute and just jump in, okay? So just say it like it is. Here it is. Would love to have you um, be a part. Well, to continue our fellowship this morning, I'd like to ask you now to stand up and just greet each other in the Lord for a few moments, and then we'll dive into the Word. All right, let's, let's return to our seats now. <clears throat> let's find our way back now to our seats. <laughs> We're going to be opening up the text this morning to 1 John chapter 4, verses 4 through verses 7 through 12. 1 John 4, 7 through 12. Follow as I read. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we had loved God, have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. This is another gospel message. I'm preaching three in a row here on the gospel, sort of to draw a line in the sand and clarify the fact that there are people who are going to heaven and people who are on the broad road that leads to destruction in hell. And I think there's no better book in the Bible than 1 John to sort of wake us up and see these realities and lay it out clear and straight regarding the gospel and our need to be holy and associated with holiness, and our need to be loving and to be associated with love. Because these associations mean everything to us. We're either children of the light, like we learned last week, and God is light, or we're not. Or we are either children who love people, and we're associated with the God who is called love, or we're not. So that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm up to this morning as well. Uh, Next week, we're going to be looking at 2 Thessalonians, starting into that epistle, and we'll be in there for several weeks studying 2 Thessalonians. You know, when I think of self-sacrificial love, and I think of missionaries, and when I think of American missionaries, I think of one person. One person comes to mind. A missionary who gave his life some 50 years ago. Who is it? Who comes to mind when you think of an American missionary? Jim Elliott. Right, Jim Elliott. It's kind of speaking rhetorically, but hey, let's, let's get active. Yeah, Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott. He's the one. And why do we think of him? Why is it? It's because he gave everything for the sake of the gospel. And he was just this radical representation of self-sacrificial love. Born October the 8th. 1927, martyred January the 8th, 1956. Why does he stand out? Because he he lived and died backing up 
self-sacrificial love. Even with a statement like this, you've heard it before, it's what he wrote in his college journal. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. A little bio on his life and the other missionaries that lived and died with him. He graduated from Wheaton College in 1949. He um, graduated with a degree in Greek because he wanted to translate the scriptures into a tribal language anywhere, somewhere. And he went to uh, a one-year or a small uh, stint of training with the Whitcliffe Institute. And there became interested in the Waldani Indians of Ecuador. And someone was saying, hey, why don't you go minister to them? And the Waldani Indians are also named the Aka Indians, and Aka means savage. So, hey, why don't you go and minister to savage, cannibalistic Indians down in Ecuador? And that seemed to fit the bill perfectly for Jim. And so Jim, who was kind of interested uh, in this gal named Elizabeth, Elizabeth Howard was sort of denying his feelings for her and they had kind of, and she for him and they had met the parents and all of that. But they said, look, this is just a big distraction. We need to go into the mission field and not worry about each other. So he went and rethought his feelings. And uh, later, one year later, was married to Elizabeth Howard, who is Elizabeth Elliot. They had a child together in 1955 and her name is Valerie Elliot Shepard. Four other missionaries um, sort of, Three others joined Jim, and actually four of them did. And one was the pilot, Nate Saint. The other is Ed McCauley, McCulley, Roger Udarian, and Peter Fleming. And they together strategized a creative way to try to infiltrate this tribal group by flying a plane in. And Nate Saint was flying the plane in a circular pattern above the tribe, and they lowered a basket full of gifts to them as a way to show love to this tribal group. And they would also call down to them by a bullhorn or a loudspeaker, greeting them and trying to make some sort of personal contact with them to show that they were there to love them. So they built a base camp some short distance away from them down the Curaray River. And then Much to their great delight, a small group from the tribe came and visited them. And they began to bond with some of the Waldonis. And one of them they nicknamed George and actually flew him up in the plane several times. And they had several visits with this small group and found great encouragement from it. So much so that they began to make plans to go and actually visit the tribe themselves. Now tragically, as you know the story goes, disaster struck... And their plans were preempted by a larger group that came from the tribe and slaughtered four of the five missionary men. They were ambushed. Nate Saint was one of them who was martyred, and he had said to his young son, We have guns, we're armed, but we would never shoot the Waldani Indians because if we are killed, we'll go to heaven. But if we shoot them, they'll go to hell. Jim Elliott was 28 years old and he was found mutilated with his colleagues downstream. Wives and children were spared. What's amazing is not just the courage and bravery of men being willing to die as much as the women who decided strategically to go back a little bit later on back into the tribe themselves. And they went and evangelized the tribe. And people believed. One that believed, Min K. Inkedi, became a pastor and an elder of the church that was planted there in Ecuador, in this tribal group. This man, Min K., became sort of a father figure to Steve Saint because Min K. had killed, personally killed and murdered his father. Only in the gospel do you see stuff like this, right? He's actually now considered a grandfather figure to Steve Saint's children as they come and they came to live amongst that tribe and I believe still do today. You might say, 
you know, that kind of Christian love, that kind of self-sacrifice, that's beyond my pay grade. That's, I'm not really in that caliber of Christianity, especially the women folk that went in themselves and became the bold witness to this tribal group that were headhunters and had killed their husbands. But I would venture to guess at the same time that there is a seed of something in you that sort of stands up when you hear a story like this and you go, you know what? Sign me up. Sign me up. I would go. I get it. I've been touched by self-sacrificial love, and I, I, I long to do the same thing for other people. Right? There's something in us that resonates with what these men and women did. Because we understand self-sacrificial love in Jesus Christ. We get it. And when we give out of the overflow of our lives in smaller ways or perhaps even greater ways, through conversations, through giving, through serving, through showing up, that's what this is. It's the same kind of self-sacrificial love. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. That's how Jim Elliott said it. Let's look at how the Apostle John said it in 1 John chapter 4. Verse 7 is where we begin. What we're going to find in this passage is our two reasons why believers love people self-sacrificially. Two reasons believers love people self-sacrificially. The first reason is found in verse 7, and that is that God defines love. God defines love. Our world and culture has all kinds of different variations and definitions of what love looks like and feels like. And most often love is sort of this ooey-gooey, rich and chewy kind of feeling that sort of you can fall into or fall out of. But instead of defining love that way, let's define it biblically. And it all begins with God himself. Look at verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. Why? For love is from God. You know what God is? God is the source of love. Now go to verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because, here it is, the summary of love, God is love. God is the source of love and he's also the summary of love. You look no further for a definition of love than what you find in God. It is, God is love. He is as much love as he is anything else. It should be difficult for us to think about God without thinking about love. Because God is love. He is. John wanted, the apostle wanted this to be communicated to his flocks. He was up in age during this time. The aged apostle, the last remaining apostle... And he was revered as a spiritual father and parent to these young churches, and he loved them. They were spread throughout modern Turkey in Asia Minor, and he wanted them to evaluate whether or not they were loving each other, whether or not they had the seed of love in their hearts, whether or not they were believers. He wanted them to reaffirm this in their lives. 1 John 5.13, I've written these things to you that you may know that you have eternal life. And so he's talking about love, and he begins in the right place. He begins with God. God is the standard of how we define love at all. These believers needed to ask themselves, do I love the world or do I love people? Do I love the church or do I love the things of the darkness? Do I love lying? Do I love error? Do I love a wrong version and vision of Christ or do I love the true Christ? Do I love my sin or do I love God who is love? So the same questions we should be asking ourselves. The first reason you self-sacrificially love is because God defines it. He sets the terms of what God is like and what love is like with himself. He begins with his nature. He says, beloved, he's addressing this church as his precious children. He's saying, I love you, beloved. Now let us love one another. This is a reciprocal term. It's the idea that love should be free-flowing back and forth throughout the body of Christ. I love you now. Love each other. Because love is from God. Love comes down from God. It's extended to us, right? We live because of his love. And so now you love each other. 
He's defining love in terms of God's nature here. God is the wellspring of love. When his spirit resides in us, we have the fruit of the spirit, which is love. Romans 5, 5 says, the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts, right? We have love. Before I was in Christ, you know I loved? Me. Preeminently. I loved me all the time. You know, we love ourselves in the sense that we feed ourselves, we you know, bathe ourselves, we clothe ourselves, we take care of ourselves. We're, we're naturally interested in ourselves. But then there's this sort of fleshly love that when you're, when you're outside of Christ, you really love yourself and you live for the next enjoyment that you can pleasure yourself with. And what John is saying is that something changes in your heart Because God, who is love, changes you. He's the source of that change. He's the reason that we want to love other people at all. Even unbelievers know something of God's love because unbelievers are spared an eternity in hell for at least a period of time. And so they're experiencing God's love. And we as believers know God's love intimately and personally because we've experienced salvation. 1 John 2 and 3 speak over and over about God's love. It's just, it's repeated throughout this epistle. We're commanded to love our enemies because we've been loved in such a great way. Now, have you ever known someone who, they say that they're a Christian, but they're not a loving person? It's a pretty extreme contradiction, isn't it? I know a lot of people who have a lot of head knowledge about the Bible and God, who've read a lot of books, who are just cold-hearted. And I also know people who are warm-hearted Christian believers who basically all they know is Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Give me that warm-hearted believer over someone who's cold-hearted and dead but knows a lot theologically. You know, it's easy to fake, I think, knowing a lot, right? You can fake the head knowledge, you can fake obedience, but it's very difficult to fake self sacrificial love. When you actually go out of your way and do something for someone else that's sacrificial to yourself. And, you know, there's, there's no parallel in terms of the joy we experience when we live that way, is there? God is the source of love. He rains it down to us when we are saved. We experience that. And he is also sort of the standard of love and the summary of love in verse 8. It says, God is love. This is a monumental statement. Lloyd-Jones said, you cannot think about God without thinking about love. F.F. Bruce, this theologian, put it this way. I love what he says. He says, this is as compressed a statement of the gospel as is imaginable. You need a statement for the gospel, like how to summarize it. God is love. You could come up and tell someone, let me tell you the good news of the gospel. You know what it is? God is love. You need that. We should live on that. And you can't switch this around. You can't say love is God and be biblically defining love. You know, it's sort of the hippie movement to say love is God, you know. Let's just love and, and be loving everywhere and feel love together, you know? That's not, that's not what John is doing. The definite article, just to give you a quick and dirty grammar lesson, you know, the, the, the definite article is before God, the word God. It's hotheos. God is the definition of love. You can't reverse it. It'd be like where Jesus said to the woman at the well, God is spirit. If you were to reverse that and say spirit is God then all of a sudden anything spiritual is God. But that's not true. The demons are not God. Things that are spiritual are not all God. God is not in everything. He is distinctively God. And he is setting the terms for what love looks like because he is God. He is love. He defines love in terms of his nature. Now, he also, in this text, defines love in terms of people's hearts, what it looks like. He says, let us love one another, for love is from God. Now, watch this, second half of verse 7. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Stop there. This kind of love that comes from God, 
It's either resident in your heart or it's not. That's what John is saying here. It either is happening and you are commended because you're a loving person. There is some sense, some measure of self-sacrifice in your life. And you are commended or, in reverse, you're someone who is condemned by this kind of love. Look at verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Say, why do we have to be so simplistic with phrases like these? Well, because, you know, hard hearts need to be broken with simple truth. Uh, Sometimes we need hammer blows in our hearts to, to be broken. And there could be some of you who are sitting here who are thinking, man, I do not self-sacrificially love or care about anybody. And you need to hear this truth. I needed to hear this truth as a 16-year-old. I didn't become a Christian until I was 17. But I thought I was a Christian. I was clinging to past professions. I was clinging to a past baptism. I was clinging to a parent affirmation. I was clinging to all kinds of things. And I was headed to hell. You either know this God who is love... He's defining and supplying the love for you, and that's happening in your heart, or it isn't. And that was the Apostle John's concern for these churches. That was what he's writing at the end of his life. This didn't come early. This wasn't 101. This was was the, the end letter before Revelation. It either commends or condemns your spiritual condition. This love, and the elder John here is saying, quit fooling yourself if you think that you're in Christ and you don't love people. The the tense here for the one who does not love in verse 8 is an aorist tense. They do not know God. And what, what the grammar is saying here is simply this. This is kind of a non-linear test. It's the idea that you can't cling to your past experiences to affirm yourself as a Christian. You have to look at this in terms of the character of a person. If they don't love, then they're not a Christian. It's kind of a a backup look at a person's character in a non-linear sense. You either know this kind of love or, or not. And again, I've known people who are puffed up with all kinds of head knowledge whose hearts are just not alive. They think they know a lot about God, but they really have not been touched in their hearts yet at all. I know a guy in college, he's a student, fellow student, was on the debate team, very brilliant, but he was spiritually dead as a doornail. And he was leading a, a club and a movement in the college where they all wore T-shirts that said, I'm, I'm chosen to be of this particular theological persuasion. I'm chosen to be a fill-in-the-blank. And this, and this team, this club, were, were finding pride in what they knew theologically, the points of theology that they knew, and they were the chosen. This guy wasn't chosen. He wasn't saved yet. We, did, you know, we didn't know whether or not he was chosen. He was spiritually dead. But God, in his mercy, humbled him. Someone confronted him of his sin, and I began to strike up a friendship with this guy. And all of a sudden, his brilliant arrogance turned into this soft-hearted, sort of beaming light countenance where we began to talk about how he was transformed now and how sinful he had been before and how the debate team was doing all kinds of sinful things. So he was alive spiritually. We had a connection. Back in Little Rock, when I was an associate pastor, there was a guy in our church who actually proved himself not to be spiritually alive because he began to reject the gospel and affirm the idea that aliens had abducted him and were going to take over the world. Talk about something I didn't learn how to address in seminary. I mean, pretty wild stuff. And this guy, it, it sounds bizarre. There's a lot of people that replace a lot of things for the gospel and their hope in Christ. This guy had listened to too much late night science fiction radio and had bought it. And so I was tapped on the shoulder by some mentors and told, hey, go to that man's house and confront him with the gospel. 
And, you know, sadly, I said yes, and even sadder than that, I didn't take anybody with me. My wife was scolding me, you know, for, for going, and his, this man that needed to be confronted, his wife was the one that had turned him in, and so I'm headed out to these sort, this sort of, you know, backwoods area in Arkansas where the trees are dark and the houses are kind of back in the trees, and as I'm driving and looking for this place, I'm thinking, man, I am in for it tonight. And all I could hear in my head was the tune, ding, 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 ding. I mean, I am just in trouble. And so I go into this house. There's the son who's this grown son who I found out later had been in prison earlier. And, you know, he's in the one room and I'm meeting with the wife and and this man. And I began to talk to him about the gospel and he begins to to confront me about my ignorance regarding aliens and nanobot technology and how they had abducted him and gotten into his bloodstream and are watching his every movement right now. And I'm thinking, man, you know, the, the problem is, is I was kind of up on some of the sci-fi pop culture during the time. So I'm following the storyline and beating him to the punchline. The saddest part was that was when he began to talk about his testimony and how he had believed in certain points of theology. And he basically said, look, how could I be affirming these points of theology and not be a Christian? Like, how could you be confronting me and bringing up church discipline with a guy like me when I've affirmed these truths? Well, you're proving yourself not to be spiritually alive. And he began to be very unloving towards me. went over to his power tools and he got upset and I thought why is he grabbing a skill saw right now I mean how is this how is this part of my event you know and it was just he was mad he was shuffling around and putting things away and all of that but it was it was sad because he wasn't alive and he needed to be disciplined and he was God is the source of love and he is the summary of love his nature defines love But the clearest definition is found in verses 9 and 10. This is the gospel story. This is Jesus' story that makes the gospel vivid to us. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Stop there. What is the clearest, most concrete manifestation of self-sacrificial love? Look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus gave it all so that we could live, right? I mean, when our hearts grow cold and we don't want to self-sacrificially love, look to the cross. That's where we find life. That's where we see the clearest, purest, most manifest expression of sacrifice. It's in Jesus the sacrifice for our sins. And I know that in your experience, you do grow cold at times. You don't want to give and you don't want to do for somebody. You don't want to go there. You don't want to have sort of awkward moments or, or you don't want to you know, push yourself to give or show up to something. Go to the cross. Go to this story to warm your hearts again and again. It's a manifestation of love. And sacrifice. Look at the phrasing here. It says, God sent his only son into the world. This is the greatest love offering that could ever have been given. His only unique son. I had a Sunday school teacher that kind of messed up the story for me one time in fifth grade. It's a great man, but he messed up at this point, And he basically said, And don't think that you're wasting time with a fifth grade Sunday school class, by the way, because I'm remembering this even now. My teacher said that God the Father is kind of this angry figure who's upset at our sin and and angry with us in heaven. And then you have Jesus who comes into the room and sort of um, stays God the Father's hand and calms him down and says, it'll be okay, Father, I'm going to go take care of it for you. That was his sort of version of the gospel here. Nothing could be further from the truth. John 3.16 clearly says, along with this, that God the Father sent his Son. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were in complete agreement and working completely in concert with one another as God, very God, to express love to you in the gospel. 
don't let anyone tell you anything different than that. There are people today who, who would even, they would call themselves Christian and they would say that Jesus dying on the cross is a version of divine child abuse. I mean, people want to just screw up the gospel and, and, and not take this love offering seriously. God sent his only son into the world. There was a paragraph that I read when I was in seminary. I remember I was in this library and reading it, and it was written by David Martin Lloyd-Jones, who has done a lot of work in First John and has impacted my heart. And I remember as I was reading this quotation that I, I felt myself sort of hovering over my seat with joy because I was so happy that this was being addressed. Just follow as I, listen as I read through this paragraph. It says, We must never think of it, meaning the gift of Jesus coming on the cross, as if the Lord Jesus were there pleading for us before an unwilling God, as if God were opposed to us and as if God were insisting on his pound of flesh and insisting upon his right hand to punish our sins. The picture of the Lord Jesus as pleading desperately and urgently, trying to persuade the Father and at last succeeding in getting him to change his opinion. But that is an impossible suggestion because we are told so plainly and clearly in the word of God that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It was not that the son decided to come on his own and then having done so is pleading urgently and passionately for our deliverance. No, it was the father who sent the son. It was God who sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law. Galatians 4.4. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. This was God's plan for you and for me. And this is why we self-sacrificially love, because we understand this. But John takes us further. Look further into this. It says, so that we might live through him. So we're brought to life. And then verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be, look at this word, the propitiation for our sins. What in the world does that word mean? Well, it's a Bible word, so I better explain it. But it's a word, if you haven't studied, you should study more deeply. Propitiation. You should first, you know, sort of take a class on how to say it over and over without getting your tongue tied. But after you learn to say propitiation, (laughs) I had to practice for this morning, um, you need to learn to define it and describe it and understand what it means. It means appeasement or satisfaction. God the Father, though he loved you and sent his son for you, before Jesus Christ died on the cross and before you became spiritually alive, did you know that you were at enmity with him? Do you know that God was angry at your sin before you came to Christ? Before Jesus Christ's atonement covered your sins? That reality is very important for you to understand how much love was given to you at the cross. Because justice was served on your behalf because God sent his son. God's wrath, in other words, was propitiated or appeased at the cross. He was satisfied. Here's another way to put it. Who did Christ die for? Who did Jesus die for? When he he came to this world, was he just thinking about you or was he thinking about the Father? It's both. Jesus died for the world, John 3, 16. He died for the elect, 1 Timothy 4, 10. It says, especially for those who believe. Christ died for you personally. Romans 5, 8 says, Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. Christ died specifically for your sins, 1 Corinthians 15, 3. It says he, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. But have you ever considered this one? Here's one. Christ Jesus died for God. That's a way to put it. We had a barrier between ourselves and our heavenly father. And justice needed to be served to appease the wrath of God. Otherwise, 
God's holiness would be marred as he receives you into his kingdom. There had to be a sacrificial atonement made for God to be both. Here it is, Romans chapter five, Romans chapter three. God had to be both just and justifier. He had to be just. Propitiation had to take place so that he would be justified to welcome you into his kingdom. So in that sense, Christ died for his heavenly father. On his heavenly father's behalf, justice was served. I think oftentimes we want our own pound of flesh and we want our own justice in terms of people that we're in conflict with, don't we? We want someone to say the magic words. We want someone to to do certain things for us before we'll forgive them, before we'll love them. But you know where justice was served? At the cross. If you need to get off go in terms of pursuing people self-sacrificially, in terms of warming up towards someone, see the fact that justice was served at the cross. That's the impetus for loving other people. Well, look at verse 11. God defines love, and now in verses 11 and 12, love defines believers. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Key word here, ought. Once you begin to understand that Christ died and satisfied the wrath of God, and Christ died to be the payment for your sins, and you are spiritually alive because of that act of self-sacrifice, then this word ought in verse 11 comes to life. If God did this for you, if he loved you in this way, then you ought to love other people. Say, I don't love that person. I don't want to talk to that person. Well, you ought to. You ought to love in that way. That, that ought is, is sort of the drivetrain in our hearts as we love people. You say, I'm cold-hearted right now. I, I don't want to love people. Well, the place to meditate, to warm your heart, is verse 11. And verses 7 through 10, to, to see the gospel. There's a variety of broken relationships, I think, represented in this room. A variety of opportunities where you need to be more loving to people. The way to get yourself there is through the gospel. It's to find that justice was served in the cross, not in something that you can do or perform. It's the antidote to a cold heart. Love defines believers. There's natural expectation there. We ought to do this. But there's also, in verse 12, a supernatural expression that's found in loving each other. No one has ever seen God. Okay, nobody's seen God here on earth. I mean, there's been Christophanies and visions and theophanies, and we know Isaiah's vision. We know the vision of heaven in Roman, uh, Revelation 4 and 5. And there, there is... A, There is and are examples of seeing God, but in the sense of people looking around here on earth, they're not seeing God. So how is God made manifest here on earth? They will know we are Christians by our what? By our what? By our love. By just doing kind of the bare minimum or just, you know, sort of normal everyday stuff by being philanthropic by just saying hey how you doing no by self-sacrificial love that's defined by God that's the kind of love that moves our hearts and this is the kind of love that makes God manifested in our world when we love self-sacrificially people sit up and take notice because it's rare and this is a call to love each other And it proves that God dwells with us. Look at verse 12 at the end. God abides in us. It proves that he's with us when we do this. And his love is perfected in us. What does that mean? This is actually a passive participle. Pointing to the fact that this isn't us performing perfect love, doing perfect deeds with each other. We're all imperfect vessels, cracked and and in need of God's grace. So we're doing our best to love each other. But as we love each other, God behind the scenes is underwriting this love. He's supporting this love. We're, we're, we're trying our best, but 
really the work is what God is doing, not what we are doing. He's doing this in and through us. And the word perfect is telos, which points to the goal of this expression. And as you love each other self-sacrificially, this goal is reached because God is energizing your love behind the scenes and manifesting his presence in the world. That's what he's saying. God is here because there's love here. There's an expression of it. And he's empowering it. And then that goal is reached. It's perfected in us. And people will see it. It's concrete and actual. All right, let's take it home. A few applications. This is the difference between worldly love and God's love. There's a lot of worldly love going on, and I think it's important for us to make that distinction before we close. Number one, worldly love is fleeting. These are probably good points to give to those of you who are married, um, who are perhaps seeking a, a new relationship with someone else. Maybe you're, you're beginning to date again or date for the first time. You need to understand love biblically. Or for those of you who are struggling in marriage, uh, you know, this is, these are good tracks to run on to think through how do you love people in a way that will last. Worldly love is fleeting. It's based on emotion defined by feelings. And it won't endure hard circumstances. We fall into it. We can fall out of this kind of love. Number two, God's love is based, instead of the worldly love, God's love is based on commitment. I was talking to a friend of mine just yesterday, counseling him, and he's kind of in a mode of separation with his wife right now. And it's just sad because I was there. I stood with him as he made his vows on his wedding day. I feel accountable, responsible to his marriage. And it comes down to the fact that a commitment is being broken. There's, there's something significant in terms of the commitment that we make when we speak the words, I, I will commit to you, I will vow to you, sickness and health, richer or poorer, right? I'm going to be there with you. Now, I know commitments are broken, Perhaps you've broken a commitment in your marriage vow. Perhaps you've had someone break their commitment from you. This is heartbreaking, but we need to come back to the Bible and and get clarity on what's going on. What does it look like to have this kind of love, to be committed? We've experienced this commitment because God has loved us, and his love vow will never be broken. Nothing can break God's love vow to you. And we need to, wherever we are, whatever we've been through, respond to that commitment and begin to live out a vow of love to each other. You say, I I can't do that. I don't have a marriage anymore. or I don't have family to do that with. Well, here's your family. Practice that kind of love now. That kind of vow, that kind of commitment. It will persevere through difficult circumstances. Number three, worldly love is self-centered. People love themselves first. We've talked a lot about that. People sacrifice for themselves. By contrast, God's love is self-sacrificial. Look no farther than the supreme model of the cross. Now, what's the impetus to self-sacrifice? I'll say it again. It's spiritual transformation. It's being affected by the gospel. And when your heart is transformed, then you love. And the joy and blessing from that is unparalleled. Number five. This is where it all kind of is boiled down to why I went to 1 John 4. Worldly love is marked by, is the mark of unbelief. If you're someone who all you do is love yourself or love superficially and know nothing of self-sacrificial love, that is a mark of not being a believer. You, You might have a pattern of superficial love and still be a believer, but you need to come back. You need to come back to the truth of what it looks like to sacrifice. See, I don't feel like sacrificing. Oftentimes, you know what I find? When you actually put love into action, the feelings kind of catch up. Number six, God's love is the mark of genuine faith. We need to pray for God's love to warm up in our hearts again as he's defined it, as he's the summary of it, as we know that we need to be like him. Because Jesus showed us this love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for this flock. And I pray, God, that we would be marked and known by self-sacrificial love. 
Let us give to other people and pour out because you have done this for us. You have, Lord, made it our supreme joy to love other people. So let us experience this joy even this week. And Lord, I pray that you would bring people into our experiences, into our lives, into our relationships that are distinctively divine appointments where we would love people and give and watch the seed of that love multiply into manifold fruit, spiritual fruit. I pray that if we know people that are hard-hearted or unloving, that we would be willing to love them enough to take them, take them to the truth about who you are and what this says. Lord, we want to be marked by faith as a people that, is, that are filled with love so that people would see your manifest love all over Anchorage Grace Church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'd like to ask you to remain seated. Um, This is sort of something I want to read to you on a pastoral note as we close. It's a good opportunity for us to love um, people in the body of Christ. Um, Many of you know Jean and Mickey Sleeper, longtime members and friends of Anchorage Grace. Jean has played in the orchestra, um, you know, for years and years, the tenor saxophone. Jean, her husband um, of 43 years, is dying of terminal cancer, and he is convalescing at home right now in his bed. I've been by there several times, and his wife, Mickey, wanted me to read something directly from her heart to you, and so I thought I would do that now, sort of as our final postmark. It says, My beloved husband of 43 years, Gene Sleeper, supposedly has a terminal disease, and unless there's a miracle of God's healing, which is not out of the question, he has a short time to live on this side of heaven, according to the doctor reports. In lieu of a memorial service, because the end is near, Uh, In lieu of a memorial service traditionally held after one passes through that final portal, I would like to invite my friends to come and visit him at home so he can enjoy seeing you and hearing your voices once again during um, this time. Uh, There are green sheets that we have on tables um, that have the posted times and dates and the address and phone number. Um, She concludes it by saying, I will miss him dearly. But as he walks through the valley of the shadow of death, he fears not and is encouraged by the salvation promise of Jesus for those of us who have accepted him by grace and grace alone as our Savior. And Jean is looking forward to a new body in heaven with our Lord and our eternal King, Mickey Sleeper. Do you hear the faith in this testimony and the love? Well, it's just another opportunity for us to self-sacrifice. So if you're friends and connected in this way, I would encourage you to respond. Let's stand as we close. Um, really enjoyed being in the Word with you this morning and today and want to encourage you to walk in this love. And if you know of someone that needs the Lord, I would encourage you to speak to them or prompt them to come talk to us. I love to share Christ and the gospel. If you have a need spiritually and want to talk and seek prayer, let's pray together. There will be counselors here as well. There's an information table as always to get more plugged in to Anchorage Grace. Um, Go in grace and peace and go in the joy of the Holy Spirit today. Dismissed.